Proceed. Yes, good morning, and may it please the court. Judith Hagley from the Department of Justice, representing the United States in this case. For over 60 years, the law has been settled that to be an educational organization within the meaning of Section 170B1A2 of the Internal Revenue Code, the organization's primary function must be providing education. It has never been enough for the organization to merely operate a school as one of its incidental functions. The operation of the schools must be the organization's primary function. This long council, 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 why did this issue with with the Mayo organization not arise till 2005? Um, it, well, the law was settled. I think, as best I can tell from the case law, this is the first organization that was not primarily engaged in formal instruction to claim. Well, why didn't um, your client come after Mayo sooner? I, I don't know. I know Mayo had a, constantly is reorganizing itself. I don't know the history of the organization. So, so what, so is there any evidence in the record whether a prior organ, a prior organization, the way it was previously reorganized, what did not uh, run afoul of this reg? I mean, you use there's some sort of agreement that the the merger that's talked about briefly in 2010 didn't mm -hmm. affect this issue. Um, so what happened back in, you know, 2000 or 1995 or 1985 or any, any of the 60 years you're talking about? Mayo has had a number of reorganizations over the years. I think the one prior to 2010 was in 1999. What is in the record is the fact that the IRS audited Mayo's claim that it was an educational organization for purposes of 514, which is the exemption to the unrelated business income tax the 2005 and 2006 tax years. What was going I, on I prior to I, Wait a minute, I understand you to say we can't learn from the record why that why this it took 60 years to develop. And I'm going back to, I'm going back to the the the, uh, the prior Mayo case from the Supreme Court uh, where uh, as you know uh, I spent a great deal of time tracking why it took from the 1930s, when the Social Security Act was formed, until the until the two until the 21st century, for the for that five billion dollar issue to arise, and there was an act, there was a clear answer, and it made a big difference to understand that. Now I'm now you're telling me that all we get in a record here is a bunch of textual arguments by lawyers. Well, we are applying the text. We're applying the text of Section 514. Don't go not into the text. I'm not done yet. Because I, I, I want to know, I want to know why, what, whether 514 is all or nothing. Well, it was an act. If, if Mayo would, if Mayo is 49% an educational organization, does it get no tax advantage? That, that's correct. It needs to be the primary function. The 49%, which I realize is a hypothetical, is I don't, under, you, I don't understand. I don't understand the tax break. It is so badly described in, in, in these briefs, and that's all I've done. I haven't dug into the record, but I don't understand 514. It talks about real property for the most part, and then, and then in the briefs, you all talk about uh, Mayo's parent being the, the investment uh, coordinator for all of the all of the functions that it does, which makes this sound like we're talking about personal property. Oh, it's it's 
the 514, the tax that is at issue here, applies to um, debt finance investments in real property, not personal property. Um, let me so the, whole, the whole 11 million is related to, to, to real property. Is related to real property that's you know an income that's unrelated to Mayo's charitable activities. Okay. It, so why why is it why is it relevant that that uh, one of the reasons it's not the primary function is that Mayo does all these all the um, the uh, securities investments for its entities. It's why is that relevant? It's relevant because the exemption in five fourteen is a very narrow one. All tax-exempt organizations must pay this tax on debt finance, uh, real property investment income, except for four narrow categories, two um, retirement accounts, title holding companies, and educational organizations within the meaning of section 170B1A2 of the code. At the time that that limited exemption was enacted in 1984, educational organization had a very well-established meaning. For decades, it was understood that it's limited to organizations that are primarily engaged in providing formal instruction and otherwise satisfy the faculty curriculum student place requirements of Section 170B1A2. Treasury had issued regulations back in the 50s. Congress never altered those regulations, even when asked to do so by interests that were lobbying against it. And in fact, over the years, Congress has cited those regulations in internal um, congressional committee reports to explain the operation of education. When, when, was, when was 514 enacted? I'm not sure when 514 was enacted, but I know the exemption issue here was enacted in 1984. Prior to I thought that was, one, that was the 170, I thought. No, it was 1984. One, no, no, 170 was enacted in 1954. Uh, well, I'm sorry, 170, yeah, B182. Yes, 170 was enacted in 1954. At that time, it had um, 170, uh, 170 B1A provides an exception to the general rule at the time setting a cap for how much uh, individuals can deduct their charitable contributions. It was originally either set at 10% or 20%. And in 1954, Congress, for a few organizations at the time, it was usually churches, schools, and hospitals, had a okay, higher. Wait, wait, when did it? When did it get? When did it get linked to the tax consequences for the institution as opposed to charitable contributors? That's what 512 and 514 do, right? That is that is correct. When did and, when did when did that happen? Well, that in. 1984 is when 514 was providing an exemption for organizations and the organization that it, Congress chose to provide this exemption to was the organization described in section 170B1A2. And in this case, as we pointed out in our brief, if Mayo's schools had been separately incorporated as their own organization, there's no question that that organization would be an educational organization within the meeting of section 170B1A2 and its real estate investments would be exempt from the UBIT tax. But what Mayo did is it's trying to use this very limited tax exemption to exempt all of its um, income from debt finance real property, the, the entire organization. And that is what we're looking at is whether Mayo, the parent organization, whether that organization qualifies as an, an exempt orb within the meaning of section 
514 and 170B1A2. And it does not because its primary function is not providing formal education and instruction. It's being the parent of a massive healthcare system. And we've laid out all of its activities. Um, you know, we summarized at the beginning of the brief that it's providing human resources, it's providing legal compliance, it's providing system-wide financing um, and planning, it's doing the fundraising. And one of its functions, as an incidental function, is also operating the schools. But the exemption doesn't apply so, to- I think you've told me it is all or nothing. All or nothing the, in the sense that you have to your be. Client, the way your client is applying 514C9, whatever it is, is all or nothing. Well, you have to be an educational organization in and of itself. Yes, and, and okay. contrast. How, how do we find out how IRS defines principal and incidental? I'm sorry? I'm sorry, could you repeat well, that? Well, the, 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 the key words in the regulations. You know, our deference is gone now, so we have, we, we have to, uh, you, you cite Kaiser, so I'm sure you know that, from, uh, and, and gone is an exaggeration, but not much. Right. <laughs> so, so now how, how do we find out whether, how the, how the IRS is applying the word principle? Does it mean 51% or does it mean 83% or what? And how are they defining incidental? Because the reasonable, reasonableness of that is now for judicial review. Right. Well, the, the, the meaning of primary is the district court held. Means primary, yes. And it just means it's going to be your lead activity. I'm not aware of any set percentage. It will just have to be your lead activity. And all your other activities can only be incidental to that, meaning they cannot be primary and or who, lead who, who decides that? It's a fact-based what, what, what level? At what level of IRS bureaucracy do we, is, the, is the word is the decision made you're not that's not primary well it'd be a fact-based test it's first done by whoever's auditing the taxpayer and, and then so and then and then they have to then who has the burden of proof to disprove the reasonableness of the uh, the irs determination well as with all tax cases is particularly when you have a tax exemption it's on the taxpayer to demonstrate that it's actually entitled to the exemption that Congress has provided in the code. Congress knows how to provide an exemption for organizations that operate a school as one of its activities, but not its primary activity. It's done this in a number of the excise tax exemptions that we've cited on page 47 of our brief. Um, it did not do that in section 5149C9C. It limited the exemption there to educational organizations described in 170 B1A2. It didn't provide the broader exemption that you see in sections like 4041 and 4221, which provide an exemption for both educational organizations described in section 170, as well as schools operated as an activity by any tax exempt organization that can satisfy the faculty curriculum student place requirements. Ms. Hagley, how do, how do, you, how do you respond to the Rosello? analysis that the district court seemed to rely on? Well, we really have two responses to that. Um, number one, it is just a single canon and it cannot be applied 
mechanically as the district court did here. This court made that point in the Union Pacific case where it rejected the government's request to apply the Rosello principle. The court recognized if you looked in that case just at the text narrowly, it appeared to apply, but then the court looked broader at the context of the language and said that it did not. And it advised this is a principle that can't be you know, applied mechanically. And the key context here, of course, the district court did not look at was the qualifier educational um, in section 170B1A2, as well as the long-held, you know, undisturbed interpretation of that term by Treasury. The second point that we make is that the presumption grows weaker when the language um, changes. And this is not a case like your court, the court's chestnut decision, where it was comparing the word notice with the word written notice and, and refused to interpret the word notice to have a written requirement because that was the only difference between those two phrases. Here, it's educational organization versus organization that has a particular principal purpose. You know, there are different ways to demonstrate primacy of activity without using principal purpose phrase. In Mayo, this court and the Supreme Court recognized that a student should primarily be engaged in educational activities, even though that phrase was not in the statute. This court in the uh, Lutheran Social Services interpreting the word church is used in section 6033 of the code, which provides an exemption to the filing requirement for churches, said that the church, the organization did not qualify for that exemption because the organization's primary activities were not religious. Um, you know, that same term is used in the first Romanette of section 170B1A2, and Mayo has not explained why it would be okay to have a primacy requirement for Romanet one and not for Romanet two. You have about um, a minute and a half left for rebuttal. Would you like to uh, reserve it? I would like to reserve it. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Ms. Hagley. Ms. Henning. Thank you, Your Honors. <clears throat> May it please the court. In this case, the USA's argument that Mayo Clinic cannot be an educational organization as defined by 26 USC section 170 A1B2, which for the sake of my mouth and your ears, I'm going to call Romanet 2 for the rest of the argument, if you don't mind, um, requires them to show at least two things. First, that there is an implicit primary purpose requirement embedded in the statutory phrase educational organization. And second, that Mayo cannot meet that requirement because its principal purpose as a hospital is necessarily healthcare and not education. Both of those arguments are proven wrong by the very next subsection of the statute, Romanet 3. Romanet 3 both provides an explicit primary purpose requirement showing that Congress was fully aware of how to add such a thing when it wanted one. And it showed that Congress believed that a hospital's principal purpose could be medical education. That's because Romanet 3 exempts donations to organizations whose, quote, principal purpose or function, end quote, is, among other things, and I'm quoting here, medical education, and that only applies, quote, if the organization is a hospital, end quote, or a hospital's affiliated research organization. Thus, necessarily, Congress has contemplated that a hospital could have a primary purpose of medical education. And medical education is a form of education. The USA doesn't argue otherwise. And the USA has conceded that Mayo meets Romanets II's faculty curriculum students place requirements. So the fact that medical education can be a hospital's primary purpose, according to Congress, really is case dispositive here, even if you accept the government's primary purpose argument with respect to medical education. Or I'm sorry, educational organization. 
Um, the USA tries to get around this reality through a series of mental gymnastics, but what gets lost in those arguments is the actual text of Section 170. Excuse me, I apologize. Um, first, I'd like to walk through why the plain language of the statute supports Mayo's refund request, and then discuss why the USA's arguments to the contrary are unavailing. So, starting with the statute, um, the UBIT statute in the relevant portion, the relevant exemption, um, exempts organizations as enrollment at two. That is educational organizations which regularly maintain uh, regularly maintain a faculty and curriculum and normally has a regularly enrolled body of pupils or students in attendance at the place where its educational activities are regularly carried on. The, again, because the USA has conceded that we meet the faculty curriculum students place requirements, the only way that there's any room for argument in this case is if the term educational organization in and of itself implicitly contains a primary purpose requirement. And it doesn't for a few reasons. One, Mayo argued previously before the district court that the term which in the statute is actually definitional. Which can introduce a definitional clause. And if the faculty students curriculum place requirements are definitional, then there's no more to do. Um, there, you, you can't. Counsel, it doesn't have to be read definitionally. It could be limitation. Correct. Uh, but and while I while I got your attention, why doesn't it uh, make sense to have the type of limitation the government wants to impose here, where you could have a gaming of the tax system to have an organization that is. Uh, uh, largely not an educational institution, hire a few teachers and get a few students that maybe one or two percent of what it actually does. And then they say, we've got to, we're an educational institution, so you can't tax our, our, uh, our business income. So I've got a couple of answers to that. The first, and I think most substantive, is um, that I think a couple of premises get shifted in the government's argument. And I'd like to take a moment to point that out to the court. Mayo is not arguing that you can be incidentally an educational organization and qualify for to be an educational organization. In other words, if your purpose is only incidentally educational, we agree you, that then you are you not determine. How do you determine whether it's only incidental? And that brings me to the, some kind of a requirement of, of primacy. That brings me to the second part of my question and, and the district court's answer as well, which is the faculty curriculum students place requirements. Those requirements are designed to make sure that um, you know you can't just call yourself educational without being educational. Now the district court ruled that there might be some room for regulation among what some of those terms mean in the faculty curriculum students place requirements. So if it's not considered definitional, you know, maybe you could talk about what exactly is faculty, what exactly is regular um, about normally. Having. What what does normally mean? Right, you could regulate around that, right? But in this case, that's not an issue because they have conceded that Mayo meets all of those things. So really, the only issue in this case is, is it the phrase educational organization that requires that you be at least 51% as, as Judge Locum was uh, sort of questioning about or however you define it, educational. And our answer is no. The statute said you have to look at the whole subsection and it says educational organization, which which, um, as you pointed out, Judge Smith, is either a definition or a narrowing term. So which um, at least narrows educational organization. So educational organization at minimum is those that meet those requirements plus, right, if it's not a definition. 
It's either just the things that meet those requirements or the things that meet those requirements plus a few. Um, but here, again, either way, Mayo qualifies because it's been conceded that we meet the faculty curriculum students place requirements. Um, and the USA's argument to the contrary um, is essentially a dictionary definition of a different phrase in Black's Law Dictionary, educational institution. Um, I would point out that just yesterday in preparation for the argument, I went on Black's Law Dictionary on, on Westlaw, and I believe it's the 2019 version which is cited, but because it's on Westlaw, I'm not 100% positive. But anyway, the version on Westlaw, when you pull it up today, of that institution actually says school, college, university, or other educational facility. So even that definition, in my view, isn't particularly helpful to them. Um, it's not helpful at all, in my view. Um, and even the USA itself couldn't agree among itself why the term educational organization is so limited here. Um, because below, the focus was on the word organization. And the argument was, if you read the summary judgment briefing below, the USA's argument was organization has to have one primary purpose. It has to have one overarching purpose by nature of being an organization. And perhaps realizing some of the you know, pragmatic difficulties with that argument here, um, the government has focused more on the adjective noun construction. Um, and again, that argument is the one that I think depends on shifting premises. It starts with the idea that you can't be just incidentally educational and call yourself an educational organization. That's not something that we would dispute, honestly. You know, if, if, you're, if you happen to have, you know, a certain class that someone says meets the faculty curriculum students place requirements, but it happens once a year um, with your faculty, that seems incredibly unlikely to me. But even if it were true, um, you know, then maybe the USA might have an argument there. Maybe. I don't think that could possibly be true given the way the statute's constructed, but that's not the situation here. Because what the USA is doing here is taking that one step further and arguing that the basically it's all or nothing, as Judge Logan well, Counsel, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be an issue perhaps for to go back to the district court for fact-finding? I don't think so, Your Honor, and the reason is a, a couple-fold. First of all, um, the USA never argued below that if, if primary is read to be somehow substantial, as, as we have argued, if, if you choose to harmonize the regulation as opposed to say that it conflicts with the statute, um, we said, well, then primary must mean some form of substantial. And we cited the Supreme Court's Agnew case in support of that proposition. We raised that below and the government offered no response to that in reply, never argued that we wouldn't meet the substantial requirement. And in fact, just continued pressing no, it has to be primary. It has to be, you know, essentially the sole purpose is, is how they argued it below. And here you guys are healthcare and you can't argue that you're that. Um, and look, the facts are undisputed that show that Mayo is an educational organization. We have one of the, I think the top num uh, resident, largest residency program by number of specialties. We're in the top five by number of residents. There's a graduate school. There's a medical college. Um, the Continuing School of Education, one of the refund years, educated 100,000, over 100,000 individuals. You cannot look at this factual record uh, and say that... Does, does the factual record present a figure as to what percentage of Mayo's overall activities are educational? So that's 
to me, that brings us to another substantive problem with this primary requirement, okay? Because the government can, can would you answer the question. Please answer the question first. I would say nearly a hundred, but it's a bit subjective. No, the and the question like was, what, what does the record tell us? And the record shows expenditures, and it's. I don't think the record definitively shows what all of those expenditures are for. However, well, the based government on expenditures, argument, based on expenditures, what what's shown? And, and this is the point that I'm trying to make, and I'm sorry if it seems non-responsive, but I'm genuinely trying to respond to your question. So we medical education requires patient care. So you can't just look at what bucket it's put into on, say, for example, a tax return, which is literally the only thing that the government relied on below, and say, oh, well, then that's not for education. Um, so patient care, we would say, is an educational expense. It would cost less to treat these patients if we weren't providing education and the, the patient treatment as, for example, the Minnesota Supreme Court has acknowledged, this court has acknowledged, is integral to our medical education. So we would say patient care expenses are medical education expenses, and that was never really disputed below. So I, I'm trying to answer your question, but I'm trying to answer it fairly, which is, for example, on the tax form, there's a line item for support services right? Those support services include things like the buildings um, that we pay for. Um, and, you know, we pay faculty salaries. There's a lot of things that are, you know, we would say are all educational. We would say our research is educational for those PhD students and the residents and things like that. So there's, re there's record evidence of some expenses. It's a little unclear on exactly which goes into which bucket. And even if it were crystal clear, um, you know, we say 100% of that, most, a lot of it anyway, is for education. I don't have a precise number for you, but all of those things go toward education. And that brings me to the problem of, particularly in the educational context, talking about a primary purpose. Because um, think of universities, right? Universities have a substantial uh, research function. And the United States here has taken the position that you know, research wouldn't count toward educational. My alma mater, perfect example, there is a um, experiment, I went to the University of Illinois, there is an experimental cornfield in the middle of the university that's 100 years old. As part of their land grant status, they felt it was critical to the university, so critical that they built the undergraduate library underground so that it didn't throw shade on that cornfield and kill that experimental research cornfield. Um, and so you could look at that and say, well, the University of Illinois is Priority clearly is research and not formal instruction. Um, this is going to create a real problem for all kinds of institutions that even the IRS would acknowledge in its own regulation fall under, um, you know, were intended to fall under the regulation. Um, well, is, this issue, is this issue before a circuit court as a, a matter of first impression? I would say no, because this court has already... Well, okay, this particular interpretation, I think, is, I think if you look at the dicta in, in particularly this court's FICA case, it's very clear that Mayo has uh, a, an educational purpose. Um, this court has already ruled that. So I guess the direct legal issue, to my knowledge, is an issue of first impression, but I think everything you need has, has been decided, which is... First of all, that the USA has conceded that we meet faculty curriculum students' place. And second of all, you know, the factual record in this court's prior ruling make very clear that Mayo has an educational organization. 
One final thing I'd like to point out in response to the government's argument, um, the government has pointed to sort of the corporate form of Mayo as somehow being dispositive here. Um, first of all, that ignores all of our arguments about, you know, things being extricably intertwined with education. Um, but second of all, it is, um, you know, it's not an argument that was made below. I encourage you to read the briefs um, because that was not the focus of the USA's argument below. They were not saying below that it's just how you're organized and that's why you're not educational. Um, the clear thrust of their argument below um, was that the that Mayo is not primarily educational because it's focused on healthcare. And so um, I would just ask the court to review that. But to the extent it matters, the, Mayo is operating all, all of these schools and again, all of these things are extricably intertwined. They're paying, you know, tens of millions of dollars in, in furtherance of education. So the idea that somehow Mayo has an incidentally educational function is absolutely not supported by this record. Thank you, Ms. Henning. Ms. Hagley, your rebuttal. Yes, thank you. I actually just had two main points that I wanted to make. Uh, one, that Mayo has no response to the fact that educational organization has a well-understood and settled meaning uh, as, as, as used in Section 170 uh, based on decades and decades of Treasury's interpretation. Congress has never disturbed and has actually relied on. Second, to the point of incidental, we, the government did argue below that Mayo's educational activities by virtue of its schools or only an incidental function of Mayo broader organizations activities. We made this point on Mayo's appendix page 131 and the IRS had made the same determination when it audited Mayo and that's in the government's appendix on page 226. The, the government relied on both qualitative and quantitative evidence to support that. You're asked about the record sites for the percentages um, I invite the court to look on page 21 of the government's opening brief where we've set out the sites that support the how Mayo on its own tax returns broke down its patient care versus its educational expenses such that in recent years its total revenue for educational revenue, Mayo's own evidence was 2%. Can I clarify one thing, yeah. Council? Uh, is the government <laughs> arguing the statute's unambiguous? Or the our primary argument is that the statute is unambiguous if you consider the text and full context of the statute, including Treasury's decades-old definition, uh, similar to how the Supreme Court analyzed the statute in the Luce case. Alternatively, so, so then this is not a Chevron deference case? It's not. Our, our alternative argument is if the court agrees with the district court that the statute is ambiguous, that Treasury's you know 60-year-old regulation is reasonable and should be deferred to. Thank you. But, um, but at a minimum, the court does need to remand the case because of the factual issues raised by um, Mayo. I see I'm out of time. Thank you so much. Unless the court has any further questions, the government rests on its brief and asks that the district court's decision be vacated and reversed. All right. I don't see any other questions. So thank you, counsel, uh, both of you, for your uh, providing argument to the court this morning in our virtual forum. We appreciate also the briefing that's been submitted in this case, it's uh, uh, a fascinating and uh, potentially very uh, difficult issue, but we appreciate your, your help with it. We'll take the case under advisement and render a decision as promptly as possible. Thank you both. You may